All right, so we're going to move ahead, uh, and if everybody would mind, wouldn't mind standing up as we read the scripture uh, for this evening. All right, this is from John 18. It says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill. Pilate then went back inside to the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. God, we open our hearts to what you want to speak to us. God, we say yes to, to being challenged by you, to being convicted. God, we love your word, and we love what you have to say to us. May we accept it. May we take it to heart. And may the word that Nate has to share with us, may it apply more than just tonight, God. May it apply to the rest of our lives. May we take it and put action to the words that we hear. We love you. may be seated. If the Bible claims the cross was the climax of human history, then what does that have to do with me 2,000 years later as an accounting student or as an engineer 
or as a barista at Starbucks. What does the cross have to do with my life today? We're in this series right now looking at, at what church history is just often dubbed the Passion Week of Christ. It is the week when Jesus turns his eyes upon the cross. He's in Jerusalem. Things are happening really quickly here. And he is, it's culminating to the cross. And then we see his death and resurrection as a result after that. But we've started this series with kind of the first three weeks we were looking at, we have been looking at, the different ways that Jesus was denied by people. And, and specifically, I kind of mentioned a couple weeks ago, there's really kind of three classes of people that we are looking at that denied him. You had, in Judaism at the time, they really broke up the world into two groups, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. But the gospel also begins to break up those people in the in the biblical narrative, on those who are following Jesus, who loved him, who wanted him to be the king of Israel, even though they didn't really know what that meant, and then those who were denying him, were rejecting him, wanted to kill him, wanted nothing to do with him. And so these first two weeks, we were looking at really these two groups of, of Jewish people. We had the religious leaders, and then we had Peter last week, and tonight we are looking at this guy, Pilate. And each group in metaphor, represents in the culmination of the cross that the entire world is denying Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus. Because what the biblical narrative is trying to get across to us is that we all have denied Jesus. In some way, shape, or form, he is on the cross because of us, for us. That is for everyone, um, why Jesus is there. And so we see Jesus really in each group clarifying for them his authority over their lives and them rejecting him for it. So the first week we talked about the Sanhedrin. They're standing in judgment over Jesus. Really Jesus pointing out to them, hey, you are, you are living for a sense of superiority, a sense of pride in your sense of self-righteousness. Right? And they stand in judgment over Jesus. They say, hey, this is why you don't fit. Jesus says, actually, I'm the judge who deserves to be standing in judgment over you, but I'm going to let you judge me instead. And they hate him for it. They want to kill him for that. And so we see Jesus confronting that identity, that identity that says, really kind of the moralist, which is so common in our world today to say, I don't want Jesus. I can be a moral person without him. And interestingly enough, there's a lot of people in church who also kind of fall into this category. They use Jesus as a means to be a good moral person, but it's about this sense of superiority, of feeling superior. And the atheist moralist is actually very, very similar to the religious person at this point, because for both of them, that is, that is their identity. I don't need Christ, or Christ is simply a means to that, but either case, it is about my sense of superiority and looking down on anyone who doesn't have the right way of thinking or the right beliefs or the right worldview or what have you. And then we got to last week, we get Peter, who loves Jesus. He thinks he loves Jesus. He does at some level, but he doesn't love Jesus as much as he loves his ambition. Because he, you know how it's interesting about Peter is he doesn't even realize the ambition in his own heart, right? It's like Jesus is like revealing the things that are true motivations in people's hearts. And we often ask this question, why do you do the things you do? Who do you do them for? And Peter thinks he's serving Jesus, but he's serving this picture in his head, right? Jesus is going to be the king of the world, he thinks. And so 
he's like, hey, I'm buddying up to this powerhouse, this future kingdom, and I'm going to be like maybe the best friend of, of the king of the world. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing. Whether it was power or prestige or, or wealth or fame or whatever was the motivation, whatever the picture was in Peter's head, he was really living for that ambition, not for Jesus. And Jesus shows him that by saying, actually, I have authority over your life. But when you are confronted with following me or serving that ambition, you're actually living for that ambition and denies Jesus as a result. And then tonight, we're at this story with Pilate. And Pilate is this, this Roman uh, governor in Israel. And we see him have this really, really fascinating interaction but at the end of the day, he is going to look at Jesus and say, I care more about my power and my position than about bending my knee to your authority in my life. And so each one, Jesus is revealing something. And for each one, Jesus is going to show that the world is denying him. These different motivations, these different objectives uh, connect to us. Like, what, why do we do the things we do? Who do we do them for? And this passage shows us, one, that everyone needs a Savior. Everyone has rejected Jesus. Everyone has denied him. Everyone is a rebel to his lordship, his authority, his rulership in their lives. Everyone needs him to save them from a destiny that is absent from intention tonight. But what is the point of the cross for my life as a college student, in my career, in my profession, in my family? Um, one of the reasons why I love this story, in fact, I have, I have preached on this passage more than any other passage in my, college, in my career as a minister. In fact, so much so that I was, I was trying to let Eric do it uh, instead, but then uh, last week I ended up being uh, on a trip with my national director and a few other staff from here, and I just I wasn't going to be able to have the time to actually do it. And so Eric was kind enough to switch with me, and, and he did Peter, which I was supposed to do last week, and he did a great job with that. Um, and, and here I am now doing this passage again, which is incredible because this, this is probably one of my favorite, not probably, this is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Because Jesus' ministry was always to the Jewish nation, but here, maybe for the very first time, Jesus is interacting with a true pagan, a true pagan of his day. You know, there's, there's plenty of people who are not of Jewish descent that Jesus interacts with, but they always fell under kind of this category of like what, we, what they call God-fearers. They believed in God and Yahweh, even if they weren't ancestors of, of Abraham. But here is Jesus, and he's talking with a true pagan. Pilate has no affinity for Israel. He doesn't care about the Jews. In fact, history would tell us he really kind of hated the Jews. He was just stuck ruling over them because Caesar had placed him there. And so he is a true pagan, and... and What's interesting is he is really the representative of the known world to the people of Israel, to the people of God, right? He speaks with the authority of Caesar when he speaks. And here he is standing in front of the representative of heaven to the people of Israel, to the world. Um, and these two representatives are talking. I just think that's fascinating. I just think the, the interaction is, is so cool. But what's so cool about it is at one point, Pilate realizes what is happening. He realizes who he's interacting with. 
Because in chapter 19, you see this, this interaction. Pilate goes up to the religious leaders and says, what's the deal here? I can't find any reason why you'd want to kill him. And they say he has to die. He claims to be the son of God. Remember two weeks ago when he quotes from Daniel and, the, and this idea of this God-man figure that comes down and rules the world and he claims that position and they want to kill him for it. And Pilate, it says two things that are really interesting. It says, one, Pilate became more afraid. And two, he walked back into the palace, went back up to Jesus and said, where did you come from? Which really doesn't make any sense unless you understand it through the worldview that Pilate would have had. Because as a pagan, he, one, was very familiar with the concept of deities coming in human form. And so when he hears the Jews say he has to die because he claimed to be the son of God, to the Jews, that was heresy, that was heretical, that was crazy, that was way out of left field. But to Pilate, that made perfect sense in his world, that a God would come and interact with humanity. What didn't make sense was that that God would be willing to allow humanity to kill him. That didn't make sense. But he, he suddenly became more afraid. He was like, what in the world is going on? And he goes back into the palace and says, where did you come from? Because what he's asking is, why did, he ask, why did he respond that way? Because what he's asking is not, did you come from Jerusalem or Judea? He doesn't care. What he's saying is, are you from heaven? Are you divine? And in this interaction, Pilate suddenly realizes what nobody else, not even the f- disciples, really get quite yet, is that Jesus is claiming to be God incarnate. And it freaks him out. And so we see this interaction so fascinating because one of the things that this shows us is that the gospel was advancing into, huma- into all the world, that it was for all the world, that it was going into the Gentile nations. It wasn't just an ethnocentric, uh, geographical, time-based revelation for the people of Israel. This was something that was going to go past Israel into all the world and that represented the salvation message for all the world. And so it, Jesus was drawing in all the world through this interaction with Pilate. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting if you think about the idea if God is real— and, and, you know, I know even in this room tonight, I know we're on Halloween night and, and there's lots of things going on. And, man, it's a privilege for us to get to have you tonight amongst, I know, you know, midterm time of season and a holiday at the same time. And we're hanging out here tonight. But, but if it, for those of you who are here, I know even in this room tonight, people are all over the place in the question of who is God and is he real. But if you would just think with me, if God were real, wouldn't it make sense, one— that he could make himself known, right? I get, that qu- I get that objection all the time on the plaza, like, oh, God is too big to be known. But at some level, they're right. It's sort of like my kids trying to understand things about me. It's like they don't fully get how the world works and what I do and what it, how I you know, provide for them just as I do and that I have a relationship with them. But, but just because I can't know everything about someone doesn't mean I can't know anything about someone. And the idea that God, if he is real, doesn't it make sense that he would be able to make himself knowable to us? And if he wanted to make himself knowable to us, which if he didn't, why did he create a sentient being asking the question, God, who are you, if not to answer the question of our hearts in that? But if God is real and he, may, he 
makes himself known to us, and he wants us to know him, wouldn't it make sense that, that follow the followers of him would be transcendent of specific culture and place? And, and this is not a, some intense argument for the existence of, of God, just a, a thought for us as we kind of move past. But as Duncan used to say, a little nugget. But the, the idea of a, a global faith, Christianity is the only faith that can really be effectively argued to, have to be one that has transcended culture, space, time, and ethnocentric ideas. That it started in the Fertile Crescent, was developed in the narrative of the Jewish people in the Middle East, sprang over to Greco-Roman culture, where it's the world, including Europe, where it took root, grew from there, and according to current growth projections right now in the very near future, uh, very possibly before you graduate college, uh, most of the Christian witness in the world will be coming from China and Africa. Like, this is a faith that has taken root in so many parts of the world that transcends the idea. And it, wouldn't that make sense that a, a faith in God would narrative of the gospel starting to break free from the ethnocentric idea of the Jews, although they certainly were a key part and never exclusive from the Jews, but was starting to broaden to reach out to the whole world. And so we are, we're starting to kind of look at this and, and Robbie Zacharias, probably in the conversation about interfaith dialogue, is probably the leading apologist of our day. He's he, uh, just a really fascinating guy. But he says any worldview, uh, religion or not, any worldview needs to be able to answer kind of four things. One, it needs to be able, be able to answer origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And when we look at the cross, the cross colors all of those things for us, that at the cross we see our origin story being expressed in God's bringing us back to that, that we were made to have this relationship with our creator that was always meant to last for eternity. And so the origin of our lives going into destiny, that that is where God has taken us back to, that the cross is about bringing us back to that place of original intent. And it also shows us a whole lot about morality because here is, if the idea of morality is the expression of God's nature in reality, morality is the expression of God's nature in reality, then, then we see at the cross maybe the most perfect expression of his nature, that God is love, that he cared so much for us that that was his choice in his free will to choose to die for us so that we could have that destiny that we had lost after our origin story. But the thing that's really kind of interesting is that we often oversimplify the conversation about meaning in our faith. And, and Bonhoeffer, uh, who is this uh, Lutheran pastor during World War II in Germany, he wrote this really famous book called Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he makes this comment that, that the Lutheran church, after the Reformation, oversimplified the gospel. Meaning, not that it wasn't true, but it was overly simplistic. In that is, Jesus died for my sins so I could go to heaven with him when I die. Because it leaves you with this question, well, what does this life have, what, is, what do I do with this life? What do I do with now? It doesn't mean anything for now. And we have 
And so he starts saying discipleship is that thing that we need to reclaim, to reclaim our purpose for the now. But what does that look like? And what is the breadth of discipleship in our life? So I want to kind of look at that um, for a few minutes here tonight. Why does the cross affect, and how does the cross affect being a teacher and my relationship with my girlfriend or my boyfriend or how I should treat my neighbors? Like, what does the cross have to do with my life today? And so to do that, we're going to jump all over Scripture. We're reading a lot of Scripture tonight, so um, just buckle up. Uh, we're going to, we're gonna, you know, get your thumb ready for swiping real quick here. But Genesis, or if you have, you know, this is, this is paper, if anybody <laughs> ever heard of that. But Genesis chapter 1, we have to go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. And Adam, nope, somehow I skipped to chapter 3, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so there's a lot here. In fact, there's, there's all kinds of questions and concerns and comments that people are probably going to have about the passages that I'm reading tonight. Um, I'm happy to go over those. I don't have time for to fully dissect so much about the Genesis account here, other than I want to just try to draw a couple of things. One, in Genesis 1, we see God saying a couple of things about what we are called to do. One, we are called to fill the earth. There was like all this, all this space. The earth, fascinatingly, in the Genesis account, is, is not full. And certainly humanity isn't full. And so, you know, there's this idea of procreate, advance, right? You know, statistically, there's any number of you that probably are going to find your spouse in this room at some point. So kind of awkward, kind of awkward, like, oh, look around the room, who are you, who's it going to be? I've done enough well married, so just, so you know, right? And so that's a good thing. God said it's not good for man to be alone. There's a point to that, and, and part of it is, hey, advance the species, right? There's some of the guys like, yeah, let's do that. All right. Super awkward. Don't start with that. You know, that's, what are you doing? Um... But fill the earth. That was, part, that was part of the relationship of man and woman. So fill it, but also subdue it. To, that, there, that the world wasn't fully developed. It wasn't fully in under control. There was chaos in the world. And God is saying, hey, I, I need you to come and, and bring order into the chaos and help bring stability to what is not stable. Really fascinating idea, um, and to rule, to rule over it as you're doing that. That we were made in the image of God, and somehow from that we are supposed to rule, subdue, and, and advance through the earth. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, says, Then the Lord 
Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed. Um, I'll kind of stop there. Okay. The thing I want you to catch here is that the garden was not the whole world. Right? The, the Genesis account has a story of God creating a space that was in some way where he was ruling. And, and if you want to understand what heaven means, perfect authority is ruling and reigning in the world. Right? And so it was effectively, the garden was, was heaven on earth, so to speak. It was a place where his beauty was being expressed, where his authority was being exercised, where his power was flowing not just a perfect ecosystem, although that was seemingly kind of like part of it, but it was, it, was, it was perfect because God was flowing in creation and that the two were working together and that Adam and Eve were supposed to take the garden and advance it past its borders. Isn't that interesting? That he was like, okay, you have a, a job to do, that you're actually supposed to take the garden and move the power of God into the rest of the world and move his order and his beauty and his nature and his character and his concern for creation and to further it, to advance it, to cause the world to come under the authority of God. That it wasn't by itself perfectly that way. That God was inviting us to advance the garden into all the world. Really fascinating. Okay, jump over to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, Lots hap- lot happens between Genesis chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 12. Namely, Adam and Eve make some really bad dietary choices. They, <laughs> it's an old joke, but it's, it's still funny. So they, they get kicked out of the garden. No longer are they able to advance the garden. They can't even be in the garden. Heaven on earth no longer is their reality. They are thrown out into the chaos of the world without the garden. And so now they have to live in this reality that they have rejected God, they've walked away from Him, and now they're in this new reality without Him. And so there's this whole narrative of, of the redemption story. And so there's this guy, Abram, and God calls Abram. He says, hey, follow me. He's like, your, des- your descendants are going to be how I'm going to get this thing jump-started again. But before we get very far, your descendants are going to have to be in slavery for 400 years. After 400 years, there's this guy, Moses, and Moses shows up, and God says, all right, it's time to free Israel. And he goes before uh, Pharaoh in Egypt, and we see uh, the, the plagues of Egypt uh, fall on uh, that country. And this story is, is really the culmination, kind of the close of that liberation story for Israel. But it says in verse 1, Exodus 12, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb from his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amounts of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Right, it's a bunch of college dudes. You gotta like triple the size, right? 
remember Eric and Kellen, after they got married, Eric, had, you know, more girls were around because of Kellen, and Eric was like, I never knew you could actually have food at the end of a hangout. <laughs> Left over. <laughs> and the girls always brought food. He was like, my guys just show up. Like, what are we eating? And they're like, it's gone. He's like, the question is not whether there's going to be food left over. It's just how much food do I want to give them that they will eat no matter what, right? But take into consideration how much, how much are you going to eat, how much are everybody going to eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defects, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meats raw or boiled in water, but roasted in the fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Yum. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. Uh, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. All right. So I know lots of questions about this passage. The things I'm wanting you to try to understand a little bit is, is one, this God is actually battling the gods of Egypt, which is really a fascinating thing. Here we are, Halloween night, right? Spooky, like spiritual things, right? And, and this sort of, it's, but here's the thing. The Bible does say, as Paul says in the New Testament, there's actually, there are principalities and powers. There are things in this world that are fighting against us, that are working against our bad, and, and it's really a fascinating conversation about why those things are. But there are powers in this world other than the Lord's, sovereign desire and will. And, and so it's as if God, now you can interpret this as simply saying that God is battling the concept of gods, right? You know, it's, it's fascinating that the plagues of Egypt, you basically can connect every plague to one of the gods that they worshiped in Egypt, whether it would be the sun god or the frog god, um, you know, but, but basically you could connect this. But God, either case, whether it's literally like the forces of of the darkness in this world that God is like confronting, uh, right? The the start of the story has these this interaction where God uh, sends Moses and and Moses uh, goes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh uh, has his his uh, basically witchcraft. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But his you know conjurers basically conjure up snakes and they actually produce out of their staff snakes and then. But Moses' staff eats them, kind of showing that God's more powerful, uh, right? You might be able to do that trick, but God is always the creator, author God. And so it's really fascinating. But God is doing war with what is binding, and this is the really the more important point. God is doing war with what binds Israel. He is fighting for their freedom from what binds them. And so, in fact, you could even make a strong argument that God is fighting against the gods of, of Egypt so that Egypt has a chance at freedom, too. That God is fighting against—now, they have submitted to those gods. They have worshipped and surrendered to those gods. 
But God is fighting against saying, hey, I am more powerful. I want you to see that. I am more powerful than the gods that you have surrendered your life to. And this is the start of their independence. The Passover story is the story of their independence. All right. Let's jump to Matthew chapter 28. Last verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16, and it says here, Then the eleven disciples, we're jumping ahead now, past Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this, this passage is super famous in Christianity, the Great Commission. Um, historians, or people, uh, theologians throughout church history have often commented on this being the second commission in the Bible, the second Great Commission. The first one is in Genesis 1. Go, advance, procreate, and subdue, rule, right? That was the first great commission in the Bible. That was the command of humanity. And then we get to Matthew, and God gives us the second command. But commentators have begun to argue, actually, that's a bad perspective on what is actually happening, that actually this is the same command. Rearticulated, recontextualized for the situation but it is, they are both the same concept. Take heaven, take the garden, take what I designed and created and gave you and advance it into the world. To further the, the rulership of God, to further his beauty and nature and design, to further his heart for the world, to see the world come into true life and joy and peace and comfort, to, to fight for the world to experience what ails it or to free it from what ails it and to bring it under the submission of the rulership of Christ and through that to bring it into transformation through Christ. That both are the same thing. One, though, was without the fall of humanity. The, one, the second is with the fall of humanity to humanity. The first is, is focused on the world. Uh, and the second is focused on the humans who are supposed to be doing that to the world. And so both are important because what it tells us is a couple of things. One, what it, one thing that it tells us is this, is that everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. In the garden, there was, there was not this command, hey, go proclaim to the zebras my gospel message, right? It wa there was not that. They were in the garden. They breathed the garden. They lived in the garden. It was day in, day out. It, that was their life. Everything they did was within the garden, which tells us one thing is that everything is spiritual, meaning when you're doing accounting homework, I, you know, I feel for you. I really do for those who have that. <laughs> I've, I've been there. But when you're doing accounting homework, you can do it as unto the Lord, that it can be worship to God, right? When Adam and Eve were taking care of the garden, literally gardening, they were worshiping God because in 
in the Bible that is, there is work and then there is worship. We're this strange hybrid between two realities. There is nothing in creation that we know of God created that is both uh, what we call animal, right? We are, we are, you know, homo sapiens. We are, you know, some kind of mammal. We are physical beings. Um, and we live and we die like animals in the reality. But we are also angels, right? We are animals and angels. And we are the only hybrid of the two realities that, that there are angels, literally, uh, in Scripture. And that's the idea that they are the sentient uh, spiritual beings, but they don't have this physical component that we know of. But we also have animals, but they don't have this image-bearing component that Genesis 1 talks about. That we are this strange hybrid, and because we were meant to be this go-between between the two realities, both working to advance his nature, advance his kingdom, advance his love, advance his character into the world, his beauty, and to worship him, to be the priests, if you will, of the world in worship back to God, to bring back the fruit of the reward of his work in the world as we offer up praise and worship into into his throne, into his presence. That we are meant to work and to worship. And, and that that was our calling. That that was our charge. That was our, the objective of our life. And so we can do that today. And it looks a lot like making coffee as a barista at Starbucks, right? It's a lot like working at Target at midnight, stocking shelves. It looks like doing your engineering final project because everything can be spiritual if everything is done for the Lord as an act of worship unto the Lord. But it also tells, now I, I'm always a little hesitant about that concept a little bit um, because whenever I communicate that concept, there's always sort of this fear that everybody then is going to be like, well, I'm going to take that as my commission my job is to smile at you as I hand you my cup of coffee um, instead of ever talking about Jesus, right? I'm not really comfortable with that. I can do this. But it's not either or. It's both and. Because the second commission was saying, hey, humanity is off track. We have fallen short of our purpose, the meaning for our lives. Why God designed us the way he did has fallen short, and we have been deceived into really uh, idolatry. And she writes, probably the leading uh, theologian in New Testament studies of our day, uh, makes this comment, he argues, all of sin is essentially an expression of idolatry, saying, I have another Lord, I have something else other than God that I'm serving. Right, And that's the thing that Jesus is trying to get at with each of the groups of people that he's talking to, whether it is pride, whether it is, is ambition that is independent of God, whether it is this idea of power or holding on to position, he's saying there's these things in your life that are you are living for. And these are the things you really are worshiping. These are the things you really are serving. And until you get those out of the way, you can't serve, you can't work for my advancement. You can't work for my kingdom in this world and you can't worship me in the truest way that I was meant, meant to be worshipped, because that is what you were meant to be. And so we see Jesus really highlighting these two, drawing them together. One is the idea of our work to bring us back to this place where we can 
work for the kingdom, work for the advancement of the garden into the world. The other one is before we can do that, we have to deal with liberation. That we have to be liberated from what is bond binding us, what is holding us back, what is enslaving us, before we can take hold of that true mission in our own lives. And so we see that the religious leaders bring Jesus before Pilate. Why? Because what, he I- what they are saying is he's got to die. But they're really in a rush. If you actually read through this, they're, they're in a hurry. They're trying to get this thing done quick. They can't kill Jesus because Rome has basically said, you don't have the rights to do the uh, punishment of de- death punishment. So uh, they're bringing him before Pilate, trying to get Pilate to do it. But the reason is, is why? Because they're trying to get ready for the Passover. And the Passover is what we read about in Exodus. It's the story of Israel's liberation from the thing that binds us. And what's fascinating is Jesus is freeing, trying to free humanity as humanity is serving other gods, but Jesus is at war with the things that were holding them back from submitting to him. As he was showing them who they really were serving or what they were really serving, he was fighting those idols, if you will. You know, we often think, oh, how archaic, how strange that people worship, you know, a frog god. It seems so funny to us. <laughs> but how many times do we do the same thing? Anytime we put something above God, we are doing the same thing. We are saying this over that, this over you. And either we bow or we kill him in our own hearts, in our own lives. There's this... Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says, He has appeared once for all, the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That... This idea is the Hebrew author is connecting what Jesus did to the Passover. And history would certainly have connected the dots there. That that Jesus is doing a living metaphor. That God is creating a living metaphor for us. Literally a metaphor of what's really going on, but using the physical to connect the dots for us. As Jesus is dying on the cross in the evening, and remember this is when the Passover lamb was supposed to be killed, right? At twilight. As Christ is dying on the cross, historians Uh, argue that it almost certainly would have been at the same time that the Passover sacrifices were starting to to happen, that that the sacrificial lambs were actually starting to be offered. Certainly, you would have heard the herds in the background while Christ was on the cross. That he was the sacrifice. He was the ultimate sacrifice for our lives. And that he was acting out freedom deliverance for us. As Israel was freed from their bondage, he was saying, through what I'm doing on the cross, I am freeing you from the bondage of your own idolatry. And she Wright says this. We're going to start kind of wrapping up here. But he says this uh, in his book, The Day the Revolution Began. And it's, it's kind of a dense concept here, a dense passage, but I'll try to unpack it real quick after I think it's worth saying. He says, The Bible then offers an analysis of the human plight different from the one normally imagined. Sin is not just bad in itself. It is the telltale symptom of a deeper problem. Humans were made for a particular vocation, which they have rejected. That 
this rejection involves a turning away from the living God to worship idols. That this results in giving to the idols forces within the creation a power over humans and the world that was rightfully that of genuine humans. And that this leads to a slavery which is ultimately the rule of death itself. It ought to be clear from all that this uh, all this, that the reason sin leads to death is not at all arbitrary, a somewhat draconian punishment for miscellaneous moral shortcomings. The link is deeper than that. When humans fail in their image-bearing vocation, the problem is not just that they face punishment. The problem is that the powers seize control, and the Creator's plan for His creation cannot go ahead as intended. What He is saying, and worship team, you guys could come on back, and we go back into some worship here, but what N.T. Wright is saying is to worship Jesus, to worship God, is, is the true intention of our, of our lives, of humanity. But when we put anything else in front of it, we are living in idolatry. And the, the consequences, Romans says that the cost, the price, the fee is death. The wages of sin is death. And what he is saying in this is that death is not an arbitrary God's like, I will smite you because you chose someone else other than me. What he's saying is this is the natural result of stepping out of your creative intention and meaning of your life. You were meant to let him be the author. When he says, worship me, it's not in a sense of I need your you know, justification and your acknowledgement of my presence to make me more valuable. He's saying, I need you to recognize that I am the source of life so that you can have life. That if you step away from that, you find death because you are now out of alignment. Kind of like the, you know, the, the funny example of the fish out of water, right? I'm free. No. You are out of alignment of how you were made and you will die. And that's what N.T. Wright is saying by bringing us back into alignment with how he designed us to be. To be the creature that both would work for the advancement of his heaven on earth and to worship him as we respond to his power and his life flowing through us that we were meant to be both and the cross teaches us what we were meant to be that Christ is bringing us back to this place that liberation is the means that Christ on the cross is acting out Passover for all of time that we can come into this place where if the cost of our sin was death, he died so that we could receive the cost of his righteousness, which was incredible reward and eternity with God. I want you guys stand and we'll go back into some worship. And I'm just going to close with this thought. I've been meditating on the cross when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And What's fascinating, in Matthew's account, he literally writes, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Because to the, the person who spoke uh, to Matthew and Matthew accounted it, he, the, whether, it was, whether it was John or Mary or whoever it was that, that shared that part of the story, they couldn't think of that moment without hearing Jesus' haunting words. There's a reason why it's there. It's, it's, not, it's a, not translated there. 
they, they said it and then translated it because they couldn't think of that moment without hearing that haunting voice in their head. Because Jesus in that moment is the only person who could authentically, truthfully say that. There's people who someday may say, God, why did you forsake me? Because actually they forsook God. They thought they were maybe living for him even, but they were really living for themselves. God said, I never knew you. You never had that relationship with me. And there's people who can't say, my God, my God, but he'll never forsake us because we have surrendered to his freedom and submitted to his cost. But he was the only one in history who would say, my God, my God, I really in my life have been perfectly in love with you, perfectly submitted to you, perfectly in intimacy with you. And in that moment, I am paying the price of their rebellion. And he knew why. Theologically, he got it, I know. But in that moment, was feeling his humanity and crying out his heart, I can't handle this. Because the price of our sin was death, rejection, abandonment. Not that God abandoned us so much as just gave us what our hearts were crying out, God, I just want to do my life without you. And so whether you're someone who says, God, I've never said, my God, my God, I've always been saying my agenda, my agenda, my plans, my plans, my ego, my ego, let me serve you, oh, my pride, oh, my power, oh, my position. Whether you're that person and say, God, I, I know it's, it's futile, it's pointless, it, it leads to death. I'm realizing that now. Or whether you're someone who said, I, my God, my God, but I'm, I'm needing to realize I need to let that flow out of this moment on Thursday nights or Tuesday nights at small group meetings or Sunday mornings at my church community, if I need to take it out of the context of categorizing faith into these compartmental moments and saying, I need to worship you when I'm doing my homework, when I'm hanging out with my girlfriend, when I'm spending time at work, may all things be worshiped unto you, my God, because through all you, all things find their meaning. So Lord, we just Thank you, Lord, that you are with us, that you are for us, that you made us, and that is our origin, that we find our creation in you, that we find our morality through you, and we find our meaning in you. Lord, may you be all that you are always meant to be in us. As we worship, as we sing, Lord, we do, we worship, not just in concepts or in words, but in the heart of saying, God, my God, my God, thank you that you died so I could live. We praise you for the work that you did on the cross because you are worthy of our praise. We love you, Jesus. Let's worship.